Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying the world of Jesus, and we hope to get you thinking about old stories in a new way. Well, friends, welcome back to Jericho Road. Uh, We have now made a pivot from prior chapters. We were talking about Genesis and Exodus, the story of us. We're now talking about the world of Jesus. And in last week's chapter, we talked about John the Baptist in a way you might not have thought of before. Today, we're gonna begin with Jesus and the world of Jesus, the friends of Jesus, the place where Jesus first began his ministry. But before we do that, I want to remind you that you can always send me questions to R. Webster at saint-lukes.com. There's a banner under me, rwebster at saint-lukes.com. Send in your questions and I'll try to incorporate these into future chapters. This morning, I wanna get us thinking about the Sea of Galilee and I was thinking a fun way to sort of give you an illustration is to tell you that a couple years ago, I was hanging out by the Sea of Galilee with my pally Don. I didn't have a group. We were just sort of doing bucket list things, at least bucket list things for me. He was sweet to make these happen. I told him that I wanted to fish just like the disciples on the lake. You see fishing boats out there all the time. I figured it couldn't be that hard. And in fact, it wasn't. Uh, Edan lives in a kibbutz on the eastern shore of the lake. And well, they've got a guy named Menachem there with a fishing boat. He goes out every day and they just thought they would put me on the boat with Menachem, uh, not telling me at the time, gosh, a crisis was averted. I didn't get to go with Menachem because I heard Menachem was a really grumpy guy and it would have been a long, long day fishing with that dude. But as it turns out, Menachem didn't fill out his boat license and he was out of commission for a while, which left us uh, with a a new crisis, right? I really wanted to fish. When was I gonna get a chance to do this? Surely somebody uh, would take a preacher on Well, fortunately, in the Galilee, uh, everybody knows somebody, and it was true in Jesus' day, and it's true uh, now. And so, Don made a couple of calls, and sure enough, uh, he told me to meet two men named Momi, which is short for Solomon, Momi and Mishael, uh, at 5.30 a.m. outside the hotel in Tiberias. So, it was dark and cold when when a small, smoky Russian car pulled up with two hooded men, both smoking cigarettes and drinking Turkish coffee, uh, pulled up to the hotel and they rolled down the window and they said, get in. And I thought, what can go wrong? Well, we rode down to a very stinking little wharf where Momi and Michelle, who spoke almost no English, uh, hurled a torrent of Hebrew uh, at the other fishermen who were teasing them uh, for this greenhorn preacher. And from the gestures, I could tell that Momi was making it very clear that he was making more money that day with a preacher in the boat than he ever would uh, simply fishing. And so they finally left him alone and they tossed me in what in effect was a very long John boat with two oars on the side. I would end up being the oarsman uh, later, which which gave me something to do, uh, full of these, these little plastic nets, and off we roared to the north shore of the lake. I learned something about fishing in the Sea of Galilee that I never considered before. First of all, kosher-eating Jewish people don't eat animals, they eat other animals. So they only eat fish that eat grass or bugs. And so uh, this is why Jesus and his pals fished with nets. You drop a net, they, they did it Back then, they do it the way you do it now. You drop a net uh, in a certain spot and you wait for a few hours and you come back and you pull up whatever has kind of run through the thing like a gill net. It, it's, it's slow and it's, it's hard work and you're pulling up nets. And I finally had my aha moment that Jesus' friends were very strong. That's not the only thing I learned about Jesus' buddies. Um, 
First of all, I need to tell you that you're not the only boat on the lake when you're fishing out there. There are also pilgrims, people who come to the Sea of Galilee to have a moment. I'd done this before. They call them Jesus boats. They're everywhere. They sort of all spec out the same so that no one has a corner on the market. It's like a big deck boat with a big big area for a pastor and a Bible and a group and maybe a choir to sing and they glide along the lake. It's really pretty fun. I love a good Jesus boat. They run quietly and they sort of give you a serene picture of what Jesus and his friends saw as they were out there working and and pulling up these grass eating fish. Well, anyway, my boy Momi had a bit of a temper on him, uh, enough so that he had been fired from the deck of a Jesus boat for anger issues, and I'm pretty sure a controlled substance. Uh, So while we were fishing, uh, Momi suddenly got very angry because not only were we pulling up our nets, he noticed that someone had dropped a net in his turf. Fishermen sort of know where the fish are going to be that night, and so they're very protective of where they put their nets, and Momi roared our boat over next to another boat with another fisherman who was the offending party and then the fist began to fly and the boats began to rock and Momi lunged for his throat and I really thought we were all going to capsize and that the other man was certainly going to be killed when a Jesus boat glided slowly by full of tourists taking pictures of our fight on the lake uh, and we were ruining their morning sunrise devotion. My second lesson is this. Fishing was hard. So was fighting. Jesus' friends, the first disciples, were rough men. They not only had to fish all day, but they had to fight for their turf. They not only worked hard, uh, but they also, they also were a rough and tumble sort uh, that, that caused me to rethink what Jesus did uh, in the first chapters of our Gospels when he called fishermen to be his first disciples and his first friends. Well, last week we were in the desert with John the Baptist, and so today I'm going to begin with the arrival in Capernaum. And what I want to do is read the first chapter of Mark, a piece of it, just Mark 1, beginning with the 21st verse, because it has an important scene here that I think we can carry forward in our lesson. They came to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I'll take a break right there and tell you that the the synagogues use local talent. The the scribes were people who were just particularly good at studying the Torah from Capernaum. And so you sort of had local preachers. And I can imagine that the preaching there probably hadn't been very good, if any, or, or ever, if ever, right? And so Jesus probably wowed them with sermons they'd never heard before. Anyway, let me keep going. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed and they kept on asking one another, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Well, the three details here that I want to discuss this morning in the story, first of all, I want to talk about the town of Capernaum. I definitely have to talk about the exorcism and then I want to, then I want to talk about the synagogue. Uh, but first, I want to show you a slide of a Google Earth image of the Sea of Galilee. 
Uh, the Sea of Galilee is not that big. The surface area of Galilee is the same as the surface area of Lake Martin. It's about seven miles wide and about 11 miles long. And I've drawn a little blue line at the top to show you where most of the gospels take place. It's just a 10 mile arc on the Northwest shore of the lake. And then the little pink dot, if you can see it on the slide, is where I've located a Capernaum. So much happened in such a small world. Um, Capernaum literally means Nahum's village was not an old town. It's actually a, a Roman town or a town that was built uh, during the Roman times within the region of the Galilee, which was a client kingdom of Rome. Let me tell you what I'm thinking. I'll take you to places, and I'll do this in the podcast, I'll take you to places that are Old Testament towns, and they always have to have three things. They have to have, they have, to have a water source, and they have to have a nearby road for trade, but they always have to have a wall for defense. That's how you can find an Old Testament town. You find that wall, and you know you found something. Well, by the time you get to the Roman era, which is shortly before the first century, and then after the first century, which would be Jesus' time, or within the first century, uh, you don't need the wall for defense anymore. Anymore. You really only need two things. You need, you need a road and you need some form of commerce so the Romans can get their taxes. And that's exactly what Capernaum had. It was, it was established about 50 years before Jesus' birth. Uh, so it's, it's a new place, but it's a place where the fish come in and the taxes are paid. And the fish are hauled off and the taxes are paid and tolls are paid on the road and the taxes are paid. And 1,500 people live in the village and the taxes are paid. And that's life in Capernaum. It's a commercial, it's a commercial place. And it was here that Jesus exercised a demon. So we've got the town down. How about the demon and the exercise? Okay, I've got a little thing that I like to do when I read the Bible. I call it God meets us where we are. And it's a helpful, it's a helpful little way of, of looking at different parts of the library that we call the Bible. I mean, it's just not one long story. It's a library of text that were written over a thousand years from each other, from different people, different places. My famous example is simply to look at the book of Exodus, which is where we've just been in the podcast. And remember uh, that in Exodus, gosh, God does stuff that God doesn't do anywhere else. Uh, look, turns the Nile River into blood or, you know, gins up uh, uh, hail and flies and gnats and boils and, and rolls around like a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God does do this stuff other places. God does this stuff in Exodus because the Egyptians lived in a world of magic. And so God meets them where they can comprehend that he is Lord of heaven and earth, right? And reveals his glory uh, over the false Egyptian gods. And so that's the story in Exodus. What happened in Galilee is that Hebrew people had been living for centuries alongside Canaanite, Canaanite people and they tried not to rub up against them too much, but their, but their thought would, would infect how they saw uh, things or infect or affect how they saw things. Uh, by the way, after I told my pally Don, I got off the water with Momi in the fist fight on the Sea of Galilee, which was actually pretty cool uh, to be a part of. I mean, I didn't, I didn't fight, but I was, I was sure rooting for our team. Uh, Idan pointed to me, pointed out to me that fishing in Jesus' day would have been even more rough because they were on the lake alongside Canaanite boats. So you're not only defending your turf, but you're also fighting 
the enemy. Uh, Canaanites had a worldview that ascribed demonic possession to lots of things. It was a common Galilean phenomenon. They, they would ascribe demonic possession to illness and to mental illness and to misfortune and to bad dreams. And they talked about it so much that this is why you have recorded people in such suffering with demonic possession in the region of the Galilee. It's how they talked. It's how they, it's how they saw themselves. Uh, I believe that this Bible is absolutely real and absolutely true, but I also believe uh, that God meets us where we are. Give you, give you another example. The devil in, 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 his, in his own warfare against the kingdom of God and the goodness of God and the abundance of God uh, knows full well that if, if I were allowed as a minister at St. Luke's to perform an exorcism on Church Street, say out in front of the city hall, uh, you couldn't get enough people. And I mean, you couldn't get any more people in St. Luke's on a Sunday morning. I mean, we come back, we'd have thousands and thousands of people because people want to see the show. Devil knows better than to, than to allow a minister to perform an exorcism on Church Street in front of City Hall. Instead, what the devil knows how to do is to kill us all slow and make us depressed and make us sad and divide us and make us angry with each other and bitter towards each other and mistrustful and lowball our expectations until slowly we fall away and we fall away and we wonder if God is real. That's the warfare we live in today and that's the healing that God can bring to us when God meets us where we are, even in 2020. So later in Mark's gospel, there's another exorcism. You'll see see exorcisms throughout the world of Jesus, especially when we're here in the first part. But in Mark chapter five, there's a story where Jesus heals this guy. We'll we'll talk about him in great detail in future chapters, but this guy's got a thousand demons in his head. Jesus said, what is your name? And and the guy says, my name is Legion. He's got got a thousand of them. And, uh, and, And Jesus heals the man and the demons actually go into a herd of swine that are on the on the side there, which swine would only be on the eastern shore of the lake because that's the Canaanite side of the lake and the swine rush into the, into the sea and they're drowned. The Israeli Antiquities Authority uh, tries to locate the places where Jesus did his ministry, not because it's an act of faith, but rather they want to provide a place for Christian pilgrims to come to the Galilee and spend money, right? And so there are, there's a place, uh, a park, if you will, uh, where Jesus preached a sermon on the mount. And there's a park, if you will, where Jesus fed the 5,000. These usually are dominated by a church. And then, and then they're, they're, it's, a, it's a dance between maybe the Roman Catholic church who owns the property and the Israeli antiquities people who make sure that the region of the Galilee looks like it did when Jesus lived there. I mean, it's all, it's all a, a great partnership. And then what'll happen on any given pretty day uh, in the spring or in the fall is that these parks are choked with pilgrims uh, from around the world and tourists and people taking pictures and praying and folks in clerical garb and habits and, and all sorts of all sorts of Christendom will show up there to the point that if you're at their peak season, it's hard to have a moment. So not in the Holy Ark that I showed you, the nine mile ark on the northwestern shore of Galilee, but rather off on the eastern shore, there is a park called the Miracle of the Pigs. I think it's a misnamed park. I think because they call it the, it's Kersey is the name of it if you want to Google it, K-U-R-S-I, Kersey. Uh, it's, uh, but because they call the park the Miracle of the Pigs, nobody goes there. And I'm not sure if I were going to the Galilee for the first time and I had a choice between feeding of the 5,000 and the Miracle of the Pigs, I'll take the 5,000. I mean, Miracle of the Pigs doesn't sound all that great. What happened was 
the Israelis uh, thought that they read the text and they saw that Jesus cast the demons into the pigs, that that was the miracle. And, and I'm, I'm guessing that they forgot that it's really about the man. So it's misnamed. If, if you had named it the healing of the man with the demons in his mind, the healing of the man, I wonder if more people would come. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. The crowds are everywhere on the Holy, the holy Ark, the Northwestern Shore of Galilee. You can go to the park where Jesus healed the man and there's nobody there. And it's beautiful and it's quiet. And I really like to go there because I can, I can get my mind right and I can be in a place where Jesus was and, and I can think about the Lord and, and, and get away from the maddening crowds. This past winter, I was palling around with the dawn up in Galilee again, and we went back to the park again to sort of poke around and get a little more of an orientation where Jesus might have performed this miracle. And I met, I met the caretaker of the park. His name is Nassim, and he's a lovely human who cuts the grass and trims the flowers and keeps the place looking just just spotless and ready for anybody who might wander by there. Nassim was, was happy to visit with me for a minute. And when Idan told him that I was a reverend from the United States, he said to me, I feel him here. Nassim is a Galilean Hebrew person. He's not, he's not a Christian. He's a practicing Jewish person. Uh, but he said, uh, I feel him here. I feel your Jesus here. I feel something happened here. And I believe it happened there. The slide that I want to show you is the slide of a bench under a tree. And he pointed to that bench. He said, I sit there and I feel him. I feel Jesus there. Rich, he said, I believe Jesus healed the man at that spot. Now, look, there's no way to prove this, but this is Nassim's feeling. And I got to tell you, somebody who lovingly uh, cuts flowers and trims a place called the Miracle of the Pigs in a park for no one to visit uh, gets my ear for just a minute. He said, I feel him here. And he said, I'll tell you what else. Other people feel him here too people whose children are in the war, they come and they sit on this bench and they pray and they feel him here. Uh, uh, people who have family in the hospitals, they come and they sit on this bench, they, they feel him here. Girls who have trouble getting pregnant, they sit on this bench and they feel him here. And I thought, isn't this remarkable that in the land that Jesus loved, among his own people, among his family, people feel him here. Now, I'm not saying that these are Christian people. I'm saying that these are people who feel the presence, the, the energy, if you will, the healing, uh, the healing power of God who meets us where we are. And it's still happening in the Galilee. People feel him there. Okay, I've talked a little bit about Capernaum and I've talked a little bit about the exorcism. Let's talk about the synagogue. So, so what happens in a synagogue? The slide that I wanna show you is the synagogue that we currently have in the center of Capernaum. And if you'll notice, it's a beautiful, beautiful ruin uh, with Corinthian columns and really, really pretty uh, white marble. And frankly, this synagogue is a mystery. Now, if you go with me, go with, go with me back to Capernaum and I'll take the group to the synagogue. It'll, it'll be common for us to have to wait in line and we'll be behind perhaps a church group from uh, the United States. And what they will do is they will um, have a pastor with them with a little microphone who will say, it happened right here, folks. It all happened right here. Jesus performed the exorcism of a man with a demon right here in this synagogue. And they'll, they'll tell their groups this, and we dare not interrupt because we don't want to give them any disrespect, but it didn't. It didn't happen there. Um, the reason why it didn't happen there, it might've happened under there, but it didn't happen there is because the architecture of the synagogue doesn't fit. It's a mystery. The next slide that I want to show you is a slide of Capernaum architecture. 
and you're gonna agree with me that it looks like a pile of black rocks. Well, guess what? Capernaum looks like a pile of black rocks right now. It looked like a pile of black rocks when Jesus lived there. There's a nice city uh, very near Capernaum on the lake called Tiberias. Jesus didn't hang out there. That was a Roman town. That was a town where the Galilean Tetrarch, the king, would live. He wouldn't go there. Uh, he hung out in a town that looked more like a trailer park full of black rocks. That's, that's Capernaum architecture. The other side, that's Roman architecture. And so what, what archaeologists have, have determined is that's a fourth century uh, structure, which means that it dates to the to the late Roman period, but hey, that still, that still doesn't end the mystery. If you have a coffee table book on the Holy Land, most newer editions will tell you that that's a fourth century synagogue on top of the first century synagogue, so that when you stand there, Jesus didn't, didn't heal the man inside of that synagogue. However, talking with my pally Don, looking at the pile of rocks, looking at the material that they had to use, looking at the money that they had, People living in Jesus' day didn't have that kind of money to build a synagogue that looked like that. People living 300 years later in Capernaum didn't have that kind of money to build a synagogue that looked like that. And I happen to like Edan's educated guess, which is to say that the synagogue was built for Roman tourism. You know, there's something remarkable about the stories of, of, of Jesus and the world of Jesus in that after Easter, uh, Christians didn't mark the spot. They didn't go back to the empty tomb. Uh, they didn't go back to the sites where Jesus did what he did. After Jesus rose from the dead, and especially after St. Paul started churches throughout the Roman Empire, they just lived it. They just lived the story. They didn't, they didn't have to go back to the story. They simply lived uh, the resurrection of Jesus. They lived like resurrection people, not afraid of dying, uh, taking care of their poor, uh, raising their children, uh, honoring their parents, and living a good Christian life. They just did it. But when Constantine, the emperor, and this happened over time, but when when Constantine the emperor allowed Christianity to become the official religion of the Roman Empire, Romans would now return to the Holy Land and they would see a pile of rocks. People would come down from, from various parts of the Roman Empire and they would say, this is Capernaum? This is the place where Jesus healed a man of a demon in his mind? This is where he called the fishermen? Uh, this is not much to look at. And so, so it's quite possible that the synagogue was built so that somebody would have something to see. And speaking of Powell Rocks, it brings me to a little house just a few hundred feet from the beginning of the synagogue. I'll show you this next slide. It looks like it looks like mud and it looks like rocks and it's probably very similar to what it looked like originally. Uh, but this is the house of the first miracle of Jesus. That's not a, that's not an exorcism. It happens a few chap a few verses rather uh, after this exorcism and Jesus is in the house of Simon Peter uh, and he takes his mother-in-law who has a fever. He takes her hand, he heals her of a fever so that she could cook them all supper, which is all that she ever wanted to do. And it's a humble little miracle, and it's, it reminds us that, that Jesus comes to us where we are, which means that more often than not, God's miracles, God's healings, God's speaking, God's right guiding, God's directing us, it's rarely a lightning bolt in the sky, but more often than not, it's something quiet, and it's something every day, and it's something just for us. This is the house, 
or we believe this is the house. Once again, we have the Romans to thank. We believe it's the house because it has a little hexagonal late Roman church built around it. And they would have, they would have honored this house because, because oral tradition would have said, this is the house that belonged to Peter. This is the house where Peter the fisherman lived. This is the house up from Peter's wharf. This is the house where his family lived. And there's a tantalizing way that Mark's gospel tells the story of Jesus in the world of Jesus. Mark's gospel always refers to Jesus at home. But this is, this is the only house we're really told that he goes to. And then from then on, for instance, in Mark chapter 9, 58, if you want to look at, it refers to the house, the house. Which house? Uh, Jesus didn't have any money. He didn't have any money to buy a house. What he had is he had friends who might have had a house. And my thinking is that more miracles happened in this house than just the healing of the woman with the fever. Uh, a man coming through the mud roof and being lowered at the feet of Jesus could have happened in this house. Uh, much of Jesus' teaching in private to his disciples, explaining how parables worked would have happened in this house. So much happened in this little town of Capernaum. Speaking of everyday, ordinary miracles and God reaching us where we are in the world of Jesus, which is also our world, by the way, but in the world of Jesus, which is the Galilee, God came to them in a very special way in 1986. The slide that I'm showing you now is a wooden boat that was found in the mud during the summer of a drought by two Galilean fishermen named Moshe and Uval. It took them a while to figure out how to do it, but they, they encased it in plastic and they treated the wood so that it wouldn't drop and blow away. They discovered that this is a fishing boat that dates from 50 years before Jesus' birth to 50 years after Jesus' birth, which locates it exactly within, within the lifetime of Jesus. It's made of several different types of wood, which means that it was a poor person's fishing boat, which means that it was repaired again and again and again. It contained Jewish artifacts, which tells us that it was a Jewish fishing boat, not a Canaanite fishing boat, like I'd mentioned before. Um, it was found right off the shore there near Capernaum, near a place called Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. Uh, I, if you continue to look at the clues and continue to boil it down, I cannot tell you for absolute certain that Jesus rode in this boat or this, will be, this happened to be Peter's boat but there would be very few boats fishing the North Shore because it was so expensive to fish. Boats were probably leased. Boats were used to travel from town to town. If you had to go from Bethsaida to Magdala Quick, you would uh, ride in a boat. What I'm telling you is it's very likely that Jesus rode in this boat or saw this boat, was very near this boat. This is the kind of boat that Jesus and his friends would have been in when he stilled a storm or when they cast nets into the sea. And I met Uval, uh, one of the Galilean fishermen who found the boat 2,000 years later. How about that for romance that two Galilean fishermen would find a Galilean boat? And after finding the boat, uh, he began to carve. He, he never had an artistic impulse before, but after he found the boat, he began carving uh, with, with the basalt rocks of the region, the same building materials, Capernaum, uh, images of peace, uh, doves, rainbows, faces, hands at prayer, praise, unity, religious symbols. He just, after he found the boat, he felt the urge to carve and his sculptures are all over the world now. Another example of Jesus meeting us where we are. We will continue in this world of Jesus and find Jesus in surprising places. But remember this, there are Galilean people who feel him there. They feel him on that little bench in a park where nobody visits. And I feel him here. 
I feel him with you today. Which brings me to a couple of questions that I'd like for you to think about with your families and friends, and it might spur another question on your own. We wanna try to make this podcast a little more interactive. The first question is this, why do you think that Jesus settled in a place like Capernaum? Why do you think he chose Capernaum? And finally, the last question is this, how has God met you where you are? Let's continue in the world of Jesus. I'll see you next week for a new chapter. Amen.